All right, Salt City. My name is Jordan. If I haven't met you yet, uh, I'd love to get a chance to meet you at some point. Um, Come say hi. Let me know if there's anything you need or any way I can be praying for you. Hope you guys had an awesome Thanksgiving and are recovering from the food coma because Jesus is about to get very real in Matthew 10. He's not pulling any punches as he hasn't throughout the book of Matthew. So uh, when you ask people what their favorite verses or chapters in the Bible are, you typically get like a Psalm 23 or a John 3.16. Nobody ever says Matthew 10. Um, and, and there's a reason for that. And, and it's not because there's deficiency in Matthew 10, but because there's deficiency in us. And it clashes with something that is going on in us. And so here's, here's what's been going on in Matthew is that Jesus was declared as the Messiah. And then he goes off into the desert and he comes back and he unpacks the nature of the kingdom. That was the Sermon on the Mount, the description of what the kingdom is like. And then he comes down off of the mountain and there's this kingdom outbreak. That's what Drew talked about last week. Where the sick are healed, the dead are raised, storms are calmed, the kingdom is breaking out. And then in Matthew 10, Jesus is going to send his disciples out with this message that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he's telling them to proclaim that message to the people of Israel primarily and then to back it up with the signs and wonders of the kingdom. But along with the power that Jesus gives his disciples to preach about his message, he also gives them something else. He gives them a warning about what the kingdom will cost them. And those warnings in Matthew 10 are going to clash head on with American culture. Because the the primary morality that we live in, and even if we think differently, are all affected by, is what's known as pluralism, or something else you could call it is tolerance. Okay, there are actually cultural sins, even though culture doesn't often talk about sin, and the cardinal cultural sin is being seen as intolerant. And, And here's the idea of pluralism or tolerance, that nobody should tell any other person what is right or what is wrong, and therefore how they should live. And there's a few problems with that. The first problem is that tolerance is actually surprisingly intolerant. Because this is what happens is when anyone tries to make a moral claim that has authority about how we all should live, that's seen as intolerant. And so tolerance is actually very intolerant of anyone who disagrees with tolerance. And so tolerance tends to be intolerant of Jesus because Jesus makes demands on our lives. Oh, yeah. All right. Let's go. Uh, (laughs) The second uh, problem that I think is the biggest problem with this idea is what it does to Jesus. Tolerance, our our modern culture has tried to tame him, to turn him in to this kind of wishy-washy religious figure without any real stances. Um, a, A person that you can, in theory, follow without changing anything about your lifestyle. A person who makes invitations without ever making demands. But that doesn't actually align with the real Jesus. The real Jesus, like I said, makes demands of the world. He makes demands of those who follow him. And here's the 
the demands that we're going to look at from Jesus in Matthew 10 this morning. The first one is endure. Endure through persecution and pain. The second is that you love nothing more than him. And then central to all of those commands is that you pick up your cross and follow him. And then after that, he's going to give us a combo of demand, but also a promise of do not be afraid. Okay, so let's take that one, that first one, endure through pain and persecution. Matthew 10, 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And then skip down to verse 22. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Okay, we need to sit with the beginning of verse 22. Because I think it's our temptation, particularly as Western, particularly as American Christians, to think that this verse does not really apply to us. But listen again to verse 22. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. So you've got to hear this. If you follow Jesus long enough in your life and publicly as Jesus has said that we should, people will stereotype you, they will misunderstand you, and at times they will hate you, not only because of who you believe, but because of at the core who you are. That is what you're signing up for in the Christian experience. But part of the reason why I think Jesus tells us that this is coming is so that we don't panic when it does happen. Because there can be a temptation when people hate us for what we believe to think that maybe that is our fault. And at times it is our fault, but it's not always our fault to to kind of think that maybe something is going wrong. And what Jesus is doing here is giving us the opportunity to not panic when we're hated by people who disagree with us, but to understand that maybe that's just a mark of authentic Christianity. And so real briefly, I want to talk specifically to our college students in the room and online. Some of you have felt um, hated or misunderstood by people in your life who don't understand why you go to Salt Company and to Salt City Church, who don't understand why you take the, the risk to gather together with other people. And you might be second guessing that reality in your life because of that opinion. But here's what I want you to hear is people just are going to hate you because you're a Christian. And if it's not because of your stance on COVID or how you're interacting with that as a Christian, it'll be because of something else. And so don't panic because of some of those things that are coming against you, but understand that that might be a mark of authentic Christianity and keep living in the way that Jesus has deemed for you to live. But the second half of that verse in 22 says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Okay, we don't think about salvation like that very often. There's a lot of lenses that we have about salvation, but we very rarely mention this idea of enduring, and it almost has this, this negative connotation in our mind. Imagine if you kind of greeted someone with, with hey, how's it going? And they said, I'm enduring. Uh, you'd probably be like, okay, what, what's wrong? Like, what's, what's going on? 
And so let this sink in that Jesus is describing salvation in this life primarily as enduring. What he's not saying is that if you thrive to the end, you will be saved. He's saying if you make it, if you get through, if you keep coming, if you persevere through everything that seemingly goes wrong with the faith that something will be better in the end, the hope in the trust of the world that he's promised you in spite of the world that you see, if you keep going and refuse to give up, that is what salvation looks like. Salvation looks like this stubborn refusal to give up on Christ, even when it feels like that is the most logical or happy thing for you to do in your life because you believe in what he said about you. You get through. And so that helps us understand what the Christian life will often look like. It will not often look like thriving. Sometimes it does and we pray for that, but it often looks like just making it by the skin of your teeth, trusting Jesus the whole way. Now, let me clarify something. Don't confuse that with thinking that if you are good at enduring, that will save you. So that is not what Jesus is saying. That maybe sounds similar, but Jesus is not saying if you happen to be one of those people that is really perseverant, then you are the ones that he will choose. He's saying, no, if you authentically have faith in him, you inevitably will endure if you abide in him, like John 15 says. And if you don't authentically love him as the sole focus of your life, that eventually will be exposed by the hardship, persecutions, and challenges in this life. Okay. I got my Christmas tree this past week. We went down and, and cut the thing down ourselves, had this whole like family Christmas tree experience, and it was super nostalgic for me because pretty much everything is nostalgic for me, but this in particular was nostalgic because getting our Christmas tree growing up was like a thing, and I have two sisters, and those sisters inexplicably every year would find the smallest, dumpiest Charlie Brown tree and would want that tree because it was cute, because apparently anything that's small is cute. And I would try to find the largest tree on the lot that I could find, and I would never win except for this one year when I was a kid. For some reason, my family decided, like, we're going to get Jordan's tree this year. And so I was just so hyped on life. I found, like, the biggest tree that I could find, and it's like, let's get this thing and let's take it home. But what do you have to do before you can take it home? You got to take it to that thing, that shakes it, right? I apparently had never been paying attention because this was news to me. And so they take my glorious tree that I had just picked out and they bring it over to this shaker and I'm watching them shake my tree back and forth and I'm like, you're killing it. Like, what are you doing? Like, I was, I was panicking because I thought it was going to break that tree in half. But what was actually happening? is it was just shaking out the needles that were already dead and the needles that were alive were unharmed by the shaking. It was just helping to expose what was already true. This is what I'm saying the Christian life is like. Is life in this world is like getting shaken over and over again. And those people who are already dead, who haven't experienced life in Christ, will fall because of that shaking. But those of us who are alive by the mercy of Jesus will hold firm in him. And so we don't have to be afraid which is something that Jesus is going to get to in a minute. But we endure through pain and persecution. Second thing that Jesus demands of us, love nothing more than you love him. Love nothing more than you love him. Verse 37, 
Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Okay. That statement sounds really harsh. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Question, is Jesus anti-family? Is what he's saying here that he wants to physically divide families for the sake of dividing families? No. Jesus is not downplaying the love of family. He's elevating the allegiance and love that it takes to become a true follower of Jesus. So he's not saying reduce your family. He's saying he's taking the most intimate relationships in your life and he's comparing them with the following and love and allegiance of Christ. And he's saying that is even higher than the most central relationship in your life. So he's comparing the love of family, and the love of God to help us understand what the love of God is like. And specifically, within this text, he compares it to the love for a child. Okay, now specifically, a parent's love for a child is fierce. Like, I don't know how to describe my love for my kid but he's invaluable to me. Like you could walk up to me and say, hey Jordan, I'll give you a million dollars if I can have Graham. And I'm like, no, like that's not even, okay, I'll, I'll up it to a billion. No, there's literally no amount that you could possibly give me, nothing that you could do to convince me to let go of that kid because Graham is of inestimable value to me. And so he's comparing the love of God to the love of a parent. So he's saying, first and foremost, a, a disciple's love for Jesus is like that. Okay, so let me ask you that question. Do you treasure Jesus? Do you delight in him? Is he your passion? Is he the thing that you love most in life? And look, I'm not just talking about feelings here, although I am talking about those things. I, I'm an ENFP or an ENFJ. I thought I was an ENFP for a while, ENFJ. So I'm, I'm more of an F, I'm a feeler. And so that tends to be more of what my walk with Jesus or how I describe what walk with Jesus looks like. But some of you are built very differently from me than that. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about is Jesus, in whatever way you would describe it, the focal point and centerpiece of your entire life around which everything else orbits because he is the center. And often what we find in our Christianity is even though we might think that will be true or even though we might confess that that is true, what our life bears out is that it's not actually true because it's unbelievably common in our culture and in our churches to say, uh, be able to give up on Jesus for the value of money. And we might not know that that's what we're doing, but we spend our lives pursuing a career or pursuing the next thing and money gains control or our career or our prestige gains control over our lives. And in essence, what we're saying is these things are more valuable to me than he is based on the way that we're living. And Jesus is saying, I need to be elevated in your life. But he's also saying this, a disciple's love for Jesus is even greater than the love that you would have, that a parent would have for a child. So let me just state again what Jesus said 
with no commentary, no qualifications. If you do not love Jesus more than the most important person in your life, your kid, your spouse, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, whoever that is, you are not worthy of him. He's saying that to follow Christ means that Jesus is in a category by himself. And so let's bring that back to like the kid analogy. Every night I pray for my son before he goes to bed. And and I'm praying that God would influence his life, but here's what I'm praying internally in that moment is God, don't take this kid from me. Because all of us know when you love something a lot, that is like your greatest fear. But by the Holy Spirit and by his work in my life, I'm learning more and more to turn that prayer into something else and say, but Jesus, if you do take him from me, your will, not mine. I will still follow. And here's why. It's because Jesus is my life. I don't have anything else besides him. Like, I relate so much to Peter when Jesus says, are you guys leaving too? And he just says, Lord, where else would I go? And that might be a weak confession of faith, but I think it's also just this true statement of what else would you do with your life? If I lost Christ, what is my life even about? Like, he is my life. I don't have a life anymore without him. And if you've, if you've ever lost someone, you, you know what it's like to walk through the world in that grieving process when everything in life just seems like shallow and hollow, like the things that you used to do that had meaning, like meals with, with family or, or going to work or enjoying a moment with some friends. It just, it seems like it's just hollow, like this is all insignificant. What's the point of any of this? This is what I'm saying is life without Jesus is hollow, There's no point to it. There's no end to it. The whole thing was always about him and it was always for him. And so if you don't have him, you don't have meaning to your life. And I know that sounds harsh if you're not a Christian. And I'm not trying to say that just to be harsh. I'm saying it because I'm thoroughly convinced by scripture and through life experience that that is just true. And I'm inviting you into the ultimate reality of the universe that can only be found in him. And when he alone is your life, nothing can replace him. Nothing can challenge him as the goodness and authority in your life. He's everything. And so come to him. Bow before him. It's the only place to find life. Where else would we go? Where else would we find meaning? And that's what Jesus goes on to say with his next demand is pick up your cross and follow. Verse 38. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So I'm going to give a a shout out to my friend Landon Quant for this observation. We were talking about this last week, and Landon pointed something out that I feel like should have been fairly obvious, but but wasn't, that really helped me. Um, he, He mentioned that when Jesus said this to his disciples, he had not gone to the cross yet. Now, obviously, Jesus meant for them to remember what he said after they had come to understand the cross and to backfill that into the meaning of this text. I think that's what he means for us to do. But I think it also is very relevant how you understand the meaning of a text in Scripture is you understand what it meant at that moment to the original audience. And so we can't miss the fact that at this time, as the the disciples are hearing Jesus say, 
pick up your cross and follow me, they have no concept of redemption. They, they, like with the cross, they have no concept of that being an item of religious significance. They're not, they're not connecting that to their faith or how God would heal them. All they're thinking about is a method of execution. So they're not thinking about the life that comes after death in that moment. They're just thinking about death. And I think that has, has to inform us on how we understand what Jesus is saying. I think a significant part of what Jesus is saying, and pick up your cross and follow me, is, is not exactly how we think about it with we all have crosses to endure. In other ways, we all have suffering that we're walking through. I think he's saying something else. I think he's saying you need to condemn your old life. You need to sentence it to death as guilty of treason before God and kill it so that you can live a new life in Christ. You need to execute your old life. You need to pick up your electric chair and follow Jesus. Condemn your old life to death to have new life in him. Now we have to acknowledge how shocking that is for us if we understand it because it's so contrary to everything we're, we're kind of taught to believe in the waters we're swimming in in culture. Here's what culture says. Your desires, pursue them. Your rights, demand them. Your dreams, chase them. Here's what Jesus says, your desires, your rights, your dreams, kill them, put them to death, pick up your cross means kill your self-interest so that you can pick up an entirely different life. So let's just, let, let me just unpack this a little bit. Christianity is death to your ambition. Part of what it means to be a Christian is to consistently pray God, less of me and more of you. Here's what being a Christian means, both for those of you who already know Jesus and those of you who are considering following Christ. Here's what you need to know. Being a Christian means going down on the ladder, not up. It means lowering yourself in the example of Christ, not elevating yourself. It means dying to the ambition, the drive in you to try to make much of your life and much of your name. It means death to your money. Money itself is not evil, but it often corrupts us. And Jesus talked a lot about how money often will challenge his lordship in your life, and you can't love both Jesus and money, and so the Christian's relationship to money is thankfulness to God for what he gives us in using it, yes, but also giving away a good chunk of it so that it doesn't rule your heart. Death to using money however you want. Death to self-service. Here's, here's the question of the life of a Christian is, is, how do I lay down as many desires as I possibly can in order to serve and benefit the desires of other people. So as a Christian, you no longer have the dream spouse that you wanted. You have the spouse in front of you that you are serving and helping become that dream spouse. You no longer have the roommate that you wanted or the friendships that you wanted. That doesn't matter anymore. You have the people in front of you to lay yourself down to serve and love them. Following Jesus means death to your dreams. You tend to think that your life is about your dream 
or your plan or the purpose that you've thought that it's been about since you were a kid. And Jesus is saying, no, your life is about his dream, his plan, his purpose. He rules it. It's about him. Death to your own authority over your own life. When scripture and you contradict, you're the one that loses, not scripture. Your own ability to choose how you should live, it's been described for you by Jesus. And you cannot challenge that authority. If he rules the cosmos, he rules you. Death to pride, to anything in your life that's designed to point to you or to make you seem better or more important or, or significant. It, you, you go down again, not up. Now, can we ask an honest question here? Why would anyone respond to that call? Why would anyone want to say yes to that? Like, can we be honest? That, does, that sounds bad. Here's why. Verse 39. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Here's why you would respond to that call, is because you want life. Paradoxically, death to the old way of living is the, the means by which you can gain life in Christ. He's offering it to you because he is a good God, and he wants life for you, and he's the one that knows where to find it. So I, throughout my life, I've had this problem with spilling anything that I'm drinking an obscene amount of the time. So when I was a kid, the, at the dinner table, just my milk glass getting spilled on everything was just like a normal part of our family routine. I think I'm about 50% spilled to non-spilled throughout my life. So I've gotten a little bit better as I've gotten older, but I'm, I'm struggling with the multitasking piece of this. And so if I'm carrying a glass of water and walking, like I'm just going to struggle. And so Jessamy's been coaching me up, and she was, uh, she was a server in college. And so she's taught me this, this trick that when you're like carrying a tray with like glasses of water on it, the temptation is to stare at the glasses of water so that you don't spill them. But that's actually the worst possible thing that you could do because of science. I don't, I don't know exactly, but it's, I, I guess your body can't like catch up with what it's seeing. Like you're not quick enough in your reflexes. So if you stare at it, that's the best way to spill it. And so what you need to do instead is get your eyes off of the glasses and up and out and your body will kind of naturally balance them and you'll actually end up being able to carry them. Okay. Imagine that those glasses on the tray is everything in your life that you want to hold on to, that you want to keep. Whether that's your family, your career, your ambitions, your passions, whatever those things are, anything that you really care about that you want to keep, they're those glasses on the tray. And here's the temptation for all of us is to think the way to be careful with those things, to keep them, is to spend our lives staring at them. But that's actually the best way to lose them. What you need to do in order to balance all of those things is get your eyes off of them and up and out onto Christ. And as you see him and you look at him as the thing that you value most in your life, that's actually counterintuitively the way to gain everything else that matters in life too. How do we know that that's true? Because Jesus has proven the concept that losing your life actually means that you gain it. Here's the first way that he did that, is by humbling himself in the way that he lived. 
Philippians talks about how Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Don't let that just wash over you because it might be familiar. Think about that. God humbling himself. God lowering himself lower than the rights that he had earned and that he deserves so that he could serve humanity that he owns, owes absolutely nothing to, that deserves nothing from him. That's the life that Jesus lived. God washed people's feet. He, he willingly took on one of the most disgusting forms of service to demonstrate his greatness through humility. And because he humbled himself, Jesus is exalted above all other names and throughout all of history will be worshipped as the supreme being in the universe. And one of the ways he demonstrated himself as exalted is by lowering himself. But ultimately, Jesus demonstrated this reality of gaining life by losing it, by embracing the cross. And we, we know what happened on the third day, but imagine those people in the moment that were watching this happen who had put all of their life and all of their faith and had said yes to this command to die to themselves, to follow Jesus, and then they're watching him be murdered on a cross and they're going, what are you doing? You were supposed to save us. You were supposed to be the hero. And what they didn't understand is that death ultimately brings life in him. Karl Barr said, only where graves are is there resurrection. And because Jesus died, it paved the way for that third day where hope launched into the world through his life. And because he died, we can come to life in him. His death, his grave offers us life. And he was the firstborn of many of us into new resurrected life. In Jesus, things that appear to be endings are just beginnings. This message has been about counting the cost. Some of you have heard that expression of Christianity. To count the cost means to understand what it'll cost you to follow Jesus. And we've got to be realistic about that. But here's also what we have to understand as Christians is there's not just a cost to one side, there's also a cost to denying Jesus and it's a far greater cost. You gotta count that cost too because if you deny him, you'll lose out on life. And for the rest of eternity, Jesus will be declared as the Lord of the universe and you will not know him and you will not be in his presence, and you will regret that denial of Christ because the cost is heavy in following Jesus, yes, but the cost is way heavier in denying him, and so we've got to count the costs both ways. Paul in Philippians 3 says that he's counted everything in his life like rubbish in comparison to the glory of knowing Jesus. What Paul wasn't saying is I'm really sad that I've had to give up on my whole life. He was saying, look at everything that I've gained in Christ. It was just that small fee of turning away from my old useless life so that I could have this new life in him. He's celebrating everything that he's gained, not what he's lost. And in the final demand from Jesus, there's also a promise. He says this, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. And I'm going back to verse 28 here in a second. But 
it, it seems like, from what Jesus has just said, there's actually a lot to be afraid of. Right? He just said that you'll be persecuted for your faith, that you might be separated from your family if they don't believe the same things that you believe. And he said that you need to die to all of your interests in your old way of life. You need to lose your life. That seems pretty frightening. So how can he turn around and say, don't be afraid? Well, verse 28, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So rapid fire, why should we not be afraid? The first reason is, if you are authentically in Christ, nothing can kill you. Well, what do you mean by that? Aren't we all going to die? Well, yes, in a temporary physical sense, but here is all death will do to you in this life. It will, is, it will usher you into the immediate presence of your God. Hallelujah. What you were born for. So your death will inevitably be, if you are in Christ, the greatest day of your life. Because it is through your death that you will gain access to life. And so don't fear people who can only kill the body. God owns both body and soul. And so worship him and you have nothing to be afraid of. Second reason you don't have to be afraid is injustice never wins. God sees everything. He knows every injustice. He knows every pain. He knows everything that has been done wrong, either in his name or against his name. And he is the one who holds the keys to eternity and will fairly and properly judge the earth. And so injustice will not last. Injustice is a temporary reality of this earth that Jesus will kill finally forever in the goodness of his character. The third reason you don't have to be afraid. You are incredibly valuable to God. Did you catch that's what he was saying? He was talking about pennies and sparrows. What was he saying? Well, he's saying these, these sparrows that can be sold for a penny, in, in, in other words, an incredibly small amount. So these sparrows are not that valuable. God even cares about them. He even knows every bird on the entire planet that has ever hit the ground. That's the type of authority and also care for his creation that he has. And he's saying, are you not infinitely more valuable than those sparrows? And so if I care for even them, can't you be assured that I will care for you? He, he's numbered the hairs on your head. In other words, he knows more about you than you know. He's more in control of your own life than you are. And he is relentlessly, obsessively out for your good in that control if you are in Christ. And so what could you possibly be afraid of? Christians, you don't have to be afraid of anything, of anything in Christ, ever, now, don't sit there and get afraid about how you're going to be bad about not getting afraid. Just enjoy that reality. You don't have to be afraid of anything. For example, COVID. You don't have to be afraid of COVID. 
Now, is what I'm saying that you don't follow any of the restrictions, you don't be careful? No, I'm not saying any of that stuff. I'm just saying ultimately COVID does not own your life, and so you don't have to live in perpetual anxiety and fear. You don't have to be afraid of the future. If the hairs on your head are numbered, then every moment of your life is numbered by God and taken care of by him. And spoiler alert, it will all be good. That's what he promises you, is every single thing that ever happens in your life, every moment for the rest of your life in Christ will always be good. Will you always know how it's good? No, absolutely not. It will often seem bad, but in him, it will always be turned to good. That's what he promises. Here's the other thing you don't have to be afraid of, your sin. Because your puny little sin in Christ cannot touch his overwhelming grace. The death that you bring to the table cannot overwhelm his life that he brings to the table. Jesus went to the grave, so now you are defined by resurrection both now and forever. And so let me just end a little bit differently. Let me give you just a a, a couple quick tips of how how to apply this. So one thing, stop reading the news so much. It induces fear. Well, I have to be informed. I have to be up. Okay, why? No, you don't. I'm not saying be completely out of touch. Maybe read it once a week or something like that, or maybe for you getting down to once a day would be helpful, but just stop feeding the fear in your life. We need to be disciplined in all areas of our lives. Why not be disciplined in our intake of media? Repent of fear instead of accepting it as the inevitable reality of your life. Turn from it like you turn from every other sin and trust Jesus. And so I'll, I'll actually call the band up. You guys can start making your way up. Here's, here's how I want to end. Instead of me praying, I actually want to give you guys a moment to just spend time with God on your own and just, just pray to him. And so... Uh, Let's just, just keep this simple, and they'll, they'll play music in the background for a little bit and start back into worship, but um, I, I just ask this, or think about this simple question. What are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? Take a moment, be honest with God about what's true to that question, what you're afraid of, and give it to him, and let him speak life into your fear. All right, so go ahead and take a few moments to pray.